our thought process around black men and how we approach black men it's not nearly as gentle and empathetic and appropriate and soft as it needs to be there's this thought process that black men are like they're like beasts and that can be further from the truth and I'm just I'm just at uh, I have this crossroads in my life where it's just like nah I gotta change that I gotta change that people always talk about my social media and how soft I am how careful I am how thoughtful I am but there are black boys and black men doing that every day the shock is, is that that's never portrayed. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the podcast, Rebel EM. Rebel EM stands for Rational Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. R.J. Lede. Now, Russell J. Lede has had many chapters. Well, we've all had many chapters, but his chapters are actually visible because you can see them in a film that he put together with some of his friends called Bootless 2. Highly recommend you watch it, and link to that will be in the show notes. So R.J. completed college at Southern University, Ph.D. work at NYU, as well as an MBA med school at Tulane, and currently he's at Indiana University pursuing a triple board in psychiatry. That'll allow him to see patients who are both pediatric as well as adult. He is the co-founder of the 15 White Coats. This is now a world-renowned organization that helps to propel underrepresented minority students into medicine. RJ has a lot to say. I have a lot to say. Together, we said a lot. We covered a lot of territory, and it's worth a listen. Most importantly, RJ and I share the fact that we are both left-handed. Okay, let's get to the conversation. When you and I first met and had a chat, I was talking about the emergency department and that I'm going to make a generalization here. Emergency doctors in general don't necessarily if they were to pick their favorite patients, their favorite patients presenting with complaints to the emergency department, typically, typically, I would say it's not patients presenting uh, with mental illness, uh, exacerbations of mental illness. And as a population, I would say that adolescents are not emergency doctors' favorite group of people. And I told you that I resonate with you and your choices of specialty that I actually love adolescence, and I really value and um, the patients that are presenting with mental health illness complaints, uh, it's really important to me that they get as much attention and care as the other patients. And audience members who are not in medicine, healthcare, may be a little shocked that doesn't everybody think that way, but the answer is no. There's a priority and a pecking order of, I think, patients that Clinicians prefer to care for versus others. One hundred and ten percent. You know, I shared that story with you. That part of the reason why I ended up in pediatrics, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry was because of my my P's emergency medicine rotation in medical school and uh, seeing a patient who came in with suicide ideations and them just being placed in a box. Um, 
And I'm saying, oh, well, we'll figure out some placement and keep it pushing. It was hard for me to see that because I was like, I mean, this is this person's first experience with healthcare, um, and they're clearly depressed. Somebody should be in there talking to them. Somebody should be helping them to figure out what's going on, giving them some context for what their brain is going through right now and what their body is experiencing. And that wasn't the case. It was kind of like this nonchalant approach of it's someone else's job. I'm just here to make sure that they're medically stable. But isn't mental health part of medical pro- medical medicine? Like, I'm just saying uh, that there's more to it than just um, blood pressures and heart rates. Um, there's more to it than that. And the brain is a part of that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why I'm doing what I do. Um, and I absolutely love it. I think I picked the most amazing career, but also um, I'm biased. So I'm happy doing what I do. So tell the audience where you are and what you're doing right now. Yeah, so I'm at Indiana University in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, mainly at Raleigh Children's Hospital, um, going through residency, which is the component of um, the medical journey that you do after medical school. Um, currently focusing on pediatrics, um, general pediatrics, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry. And I am in my first year, which is tumultuously called the intern year. Um, and it is hard, but it is fun and I'm enjoying it. You know, what we are exposed to in medicine, um, is a lot of trauma. We see a lot of devastating, challenging experiences and, you know, in our own lives, everybody's had their own exposure and, um, interactions with trauma. I'm wondering for you, um, where did trauma in your own life play a role and what have you done? What do you do to try to protect and heal yourself from the trauma? Yeah, I think a lot of the trauma for me, that's at the f- most forefront component of my thinking is this journey into medicine and science as a first generation um, physician. And the trauma I'm talking about is the distance from your family, um, your family not really understanding what you're doing or what you're going through, the financial trauma, because <laughs> it's hard um, to financially do this work, um, and the emotional trauma, because you can't really connect with your family as much as you would like to, because you're so far away almost all the time. Um, I think that's the most poignant feelings I've had as of late. And I think the way that it's playing out in my life and in my practice in medicine is me being more compassionate towards patients, more empathetic towards patients and their families. I think I've I've grown to, in my short time, have a practice where I really include the parents as a component of everything, from even talking to the child and then not just being centered on the patient, but also centered on the family dynamic and realizing how much of an impact that has on the long-term outcomes for these patients. Um, because I personally understand how important connection with your family is to, um, to succeeding. Um, you've said in one of your interviews, poverty did a number on me. Yeah. Poverty, poverty did probably the biggest number. I think I'm finally at a place where I've debunked what poverty kind of, uh, 
ingrained in my brain, which was you're not worth that much. Um, you can accomplish all of these things, but you're not worth that much. Um, you don't belong to be in these places. You don't belong to have, you don't, you don't deserve to have good things. Um, you don't deserve to have safety. Um, you come from nothing. And I think all of those things play in your psyche for a very long time. And it takes a lot of therapy. It takes a lot of, um, community. And it takes a lot of life experiences and triumphs to debunk what poverty did. And especially with that happening to me as a child and an adolescent, um, it, it's part of my core memory. And it's taken a lot to not think that way. Because um, I recognize it's also detrimental to my patients, too. Yeah. Uh, physician heal thyself, they say, whoever they are. But um, so you just shared a few ways to heal, uh, to move beyond, to integrate it in a healthy way. So what would be the RJ recipe for dealing with trauma? I think if possible, you got to get away from it. And I'm not talking about like to a different street in the same city. I'm saying a totally different experience. The military gave me an out. Um it forced me to experience a different part of the world. Um, helped me to learn about different cultures. Helped me to see myself in a different light. Helped me to see that there are areas of the world where I am needed and I can be utilized for good. Um, the second thing is, is to talk about it. Um, a lot of us can't afford a therapist or we don't have access to a therapist. But along your journey of getting out, you'll find people who are willing to listen to you. Um, who are willing to help you, who are further along. Um, Adira Landry is a good example for me. Um, I've called her on a number of occasions. and She was like, well, RJ, here's what you need to do. Um, and here's what I've learned along my way. Um, that's the second component is find some folks who are going to help you. And then the third part is is um, do some self-work. You know, um, I do a lot of reading. Yagyasi was, you know, just one example of that. But... Um, you know, I do a lot of reading and I do a lot of writing because I think keeping it in my head is toxic. Um, and then finding community and people who have been through my experience but are further along is helpful because they'll tell you, hey, here's how I got over. I shared with you before we press record that I wasn't going to ask you some of the same questions and have you repeat some of the same stories that I've seen on interviews, seen written that you get asked on podcasts. And one of my concerns, I'll be honest, is that it's re-traumatizing to always tell these stories. You know, that may be the case, but I think um, I model a lot of my approach to life after John Lewis, um, a dear frat brother of mine, but also just a man of, um, of valor, of honor, who was willing to take on the responsibilities that his ancestors had on before him. I think that's an unpopular approach because I think a lot of people are looking for comfortability in life at this point. And that's okay. But I think I'm willing to take on the mantle and do the work that my ancestors left behind for me to do. And yes, that's taxing. Um, but how else is progress supposed to happen? Um, I can't rely on my allies to do it. 
because they can't tell the story appropriately. Um, I can't rely on the disruptors to do it because they may be too busy fighting the system. Um, and I have the wherewithal, the influence and the presence to do it. So who better to do it than me? I think I look for fitting jobs. And this is one of them is telling my own story and the story of those who um, who are coming along this path with me. And as um, you have said, and it's part of the mission of 15 White Coats, resilience is in our DNA. Yeah, I mean, um, this 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 hoodie I'm wearing now is um, a hoodie we designed called Shades of Melanin. And uh, it's supposed to represent the different tones of skin that come into medicine in a various different forms. We have one for PAs and nurse practitioners and everybody in the medical respiratory therapists and everybody in, involved. But I think my thought process is health is one of the, you know, commodities that humans have that is not, we don't really have the expense of just being able to leave it out for itself. And we have to take care of our bodies. We have to take care of our minds. And who better to do that than people who are culturally aligned? Um, and then oftentimes, actually, racial concordance has helped with outcomes. And so in order for us to promote diversity in medicine, obviously, we've got to raise money um, to help with scholarships. People don't know how much it costs to go into medicine. <laughs> people have no clue. They just, you know, they, they get excited at the White Coast ceremony and at graduation and match day and this and that. People have no idea what these people are going through to become physicians, optometrists, dentists, all of the different things. And so what the 15 White Coats is doing is really amazing. I'm glad to be at the head, um, along with Sydney Labatt, and Rachel Turner, Brian Washington, and a host of other people who are really making this possible. In the show notes, we'll highlight uh, a bit about 15 White Coats, but if you were to provide the two-minute elevator pitch to someone that's like, wait, what's this thing I hear about, the 15 White Coats? <laughs> yeah, the 15 White Coats is a nonprofit organization that was started after a photo of 15 black medical students at the Whitney Plantation went viral. And we took that opportunity to raise awareness for a need for diversity in medicine, but also raise funds so that we can help people from minoritized populations get into medicine, get through medicine and thrive in medicine. And to date, we've raised over a million dollars um, and been able to give out a good bit of that to help provide scholarships, um, call map subscriptions, pay for board exams, pay for board prep material, um, put money in people's pocket, um, get people travel. We've done it all. Yeah. And there's a, a clarity that the money doesn't go into your pocket or the founder's pockets. It's really to go into the organization. And you have an MBA, and I think it is so spot on to get an MBA, to understand the business and the money because of the way the world works, the way the things works, the way medicine works, so that you can be intentional about the way you structure the organization. One question I had is, so you're getting people in, sort of feeding the pipeline. What has been put in place to keep people in medicine because people are leaving? Yeah, I think that part is hard. Um, so I actually am in the process of applying for the American Academy of Pediatrics um, Advocacy Council who goes on to Washington um, and talk to politicians about 
a need for change in medicine, not only from um, the culture of medicine and how appropriate it is for people from minoritized populations, but also the work conditions for residents. Um, I talk about this all the time. People are really shocked when I tell them that if you were to account for the hours that residents work, they make between five and ten dollars an hour. Um, so they're essentially making minimum wage as physicians and people are doing this for long periods of time. Um, we're talking about five to seven years for a lot of folks. And so we need to change a few things. We need to make it more financially feasible for residents. We need to honestly um, make the work conditions better for attendings. Um, and then just create a, a more inclusive environment within hospital settings. I, I think I, one of the huge examples I always give is Every patient, whether I make the assumption that they speak English or not, I always ask them, do you need a translator? And you would be shocked at how many patients or their parents are like, no one's ever asked us that, but we would love to have a translator. Um, or just not making the assumption that what someone is wearing determines how much uh, money they have. Because I think your determination of their... Um, their, you know, their their base income plays a huge role in how you treat that patient, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Do you have a specific scenario with the translator where you used it and it ended up changing patient care? Yeah, I think um, one of the best examples is um, I think the initial um, triage was that the patient had, like, three weeks of fever um, and they had night sweats and they were having diarrhea and they were vomiting and there was a history of cancer and all these different things, but there was never a translator used. And then that was kind of the triage situation. That patient got into a room and I asked him, do you want a translator? Um, and the translator came into the room. Obviously, my thought process was very high on differential was B symptoms. And I'm thinking about cancer and all these different things. And we kind of went along with that approach only for me to ask them, hey, can you just tell me how long again this patient has had a fever? And they were like, no, it's three days. <laughs> it's three days. And they had cough and rhinorrhea and all these other things. And, and, and I guess the point to that is, is that you can find yourself making assumptions about a patient's presentation based on what someone is telling you. But if it's not in a language that can, you know, be synthesized back and forth, then you find yourself in a dangerous position, getting laughs that don't need to be gotten, um, exposing kids to radiation that they don't need, um, and just, you know, decreasing the quality of their care. And so I think we need to be very careful in the way that we approach patients in general, but especially if there's any thought at all that they need a translator. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that example. Um, I'm also glad you, you talked about bringing family into the room and involving the caregivers. Um, I sometimes do these triage shifts in the emergency department, and someone will come in with the patient, and my first question is always, oh, how are you two related? And sometimes people are like, I'm the mom or like, I'm the wife or I'm the husband or I'm the son, you know, and I was just like, no, 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 like, you know, no judgments. And I've been wrong when I, you know, and I always ask. And the reason is, is I want them to participate with me in this patient care. And so, you know, say someone comes in with exactly what you say, say diarrhea, runny nose, three days, fever. 
and I talk to the patient and then I'll say, mom, what do you think is going on? And mm-hmm. number one, they're so worried and they're so glad to participate and, and to, to, to share. And, you know, they know the patient much better than I do. I'm meeting this person at one photograph in time. And um, that sort of, it's very health design thinking, the framework to have the end user, be that the patient, be that the clinician, be that the caregiver in mind as you're figuring out the solution, the problem, the question of why this patient is coming and what you need to do for them. Yeah, I I don't think of a better setting than when I was in NICU. Um, You know, these babies are so small and a lot of them are very sick. And we're trying to figure out how to manage them. And oftentimes we can walk into the room and just talk about the patient. <laughs> and we just talk about the patient and talk about the patient, talk about the patient for sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes. And one day it dawned on me. I was like, I'm going to ask the parents, how are they doing? Like, how are they processing all of this? Just a very simple, like, I know we're going to talk about this patient and everybody's centered on this patient, but how are you doing? Like, how are you doing? And what can we do here? Like, can we get you a cup of ice? Can we get you a hot cocoa? Um, Can you take a walk and we'll make sure the nurse is in the room? You know, like, what can we do for you? And you would be surprised at how many parents are just grateful for someone to stop and say, like, how are you doing? I know we're going to talk about this baby, but how are you? You just had a baby. Like, how are you? Um and that, that plays a huge role even in the patient care because it allows for the family to want to be there. Because um, sometimes they get frustrated at the fact that the only thing we're talking about is the patient. Um, and so, I, I, you know, we're learning along the way, all of us, how to be more empathetic, but also more family-centered. You've talked a bit about the hidden costs of medicine, the hidden costs of getting educated in medicine. Can you give some specifics, some granularity for audience members that might be a little shocked about the costs? Yeah. So to prepare for the medical college admissions tests, you can pay sometimes two, $3,000 for one of these prep courses. And then you take the MCAT or medical college admissions test, and that can be four or five, $600. Um, you can get some support through the AAMC, through their fee assistance program, but generally most people will pay about three, four, five hundred, six hundred dollars to take it. And so then you have to pay to interview at all of these medical schools. Thankfully, lately they've been virtual. So we really haven't had to pay as much. But before we would have to fly to all these different places. So we're talking about a flight there and back. We're talking about a suit. We're talking about a hotel and no one covers these costs except for you. If you're first generation and you take into account the economic history in our country for minoritized populations, you already know we're at a disadvantage. And then you get into medical school, you have step one, which is your first board exam. You have step two, which is your second board exam. You have all of these different things like Sketchy and Picmonic and all of these different learning platforms that you have to use outside of just your medical school education to help you prepare for those board exams. So that that right there, we're talking about two, $3,000. And then each board exam is like 800 and I think like $1,000 or somewhere in that, that range. And then you have to pay to apply to residency, which costs thousands of dollars. So right now, 
And on top of this, you can't work during this time because there's no way you're going to work a full time job while in medical school. It's pretty much impossible. Maybe there are a few people who do it, um, but that's really hard to do. So you're on loans. So you're accumulating hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. Now, I know a lot of people's argument will be, well, one day you'll make enough money to be able to pay that off. Well, if you look into attending pay these days, it's not as much as you think it is. I think a lot of people hear medicine, physician, and think dollars. And it doesn't work that way. It's not linear like that. Um, and not only that, there's an emotional toll um, because you're frustrated at the fact that your family doesn't actually understand what you're trying to do. So they don't even know how to support you. And you also don't have enough time to communicate it to them. And they're not going to go to do any of that homework on their own. So it's a very tumultuous process and it's costly. Yeah. Thanks for giving those details. And uh, to your point, there's a lot in there that's expected that somehow you're going to be able to pay for. And no one quite tells you the playbook, the rule book. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, actually, a lot of people know the playbook. Because they have a lot of family members who've done it already. <laughs> right. If you're, if you're a member of certain majority, well, let's see. Let me see how I want to say this. Certain people get the, are given the playbook when they, when they show up. And certain of us are not, you know, for different reasons, different identities, different backgrounds. But there's sort of, there's definitely, a, it's a sociological study of in-group, out-group. In-group gets a copy of the playbook. Out-group is like, wait a minute, how'd you know how to do that? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> wait a minute, where? What do I join? <laughs> yeah, it's too much of that. A little bit too much of that. <laughs> yeah, so that actually leads right into education and your in interest in education reform, be it your daughters and the education and the topics they're learning at school, uh, be it your own education, having attended an HBCU, be it, you know, your plan to go to Capitol Hill and talk about education reform and medicine. Yeah, I think there's a lot that needs to change. I think um, I remember making this really wild recommendation to my dean of the medical school that I went to, Tulane. Um, I was like, every medical student should read Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. I was like, every medical student should read it. I was like, every resident should read it. Every attending should read it. Every, you know, hospital official should read it. She was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yes, go read it. Um, and of course, it seemed extreme. But I think, um, especially right now with the, like all of these arguments around critical race theory and all of these different things, is that we have to get to a place to where we understand how history has played into how we do things now and how we can move forward without repeating history especially with me raising two black girls. Um, I want there to be a more candid approach to history and medicine. Um, it'll make us more empathetic physicians. It'll make us more understanding physicians. Um, a lot of us work in uh, high poverty, low income areas when it comes to hospitals. And if you don't have that cultural competence as a lens that you look through when you get ready to treat a patient, you end up with lower outcomes, um, lower medication adherence, and likely higher mortality. 
And that all falls on the head of the physician, I think, if we still take the approach that physicians are still the leaders of medicine. Why did you select psychiatry? Oh, that's a loaded question, Risa. <laughs> um, honestly, because mental health wasn't a thing when I was a child. And looking back on my own childhood, and as I stated, poverty did a number on me. I wish there was a therapist around for me. Um, I don't know if I'd have needed a psychiatrist, but I for sure needed a therapist. Not only for me, but for my mom and for our family. We needed one to help us understand what we were going through. Um, I think our therapist at the time was our social worker who was helping us to get food stamps. Or the person helping us to get child support. And I don't think that's appropriate therapy. Um, I think destigmatizing mental health in minoritized populations is a calling on my life. And I want to make sure I'm at the head of that. But I also want to make sure that there's mental health access for juveniles within the justice system. Which I know seems like a tangent. But in order to decrease recidivism, especially amongst juveniles, you're going to have to help them see that they have self-worth. And I don't think there's anybody better suited to do that than me. I purposely keep my hair this way. I purposely keep my beard this way. I talk this way. You know, I wear my clothes a certain way because I don't want to lose my culture while I'm in medicine. I actually want to bring my culture to medicine. But I also want to be in a community and not be looked at as somebody who's an outsider. Um, I want to still be able to communicate with my community in a way that causes change, good change, and equitable change. And in order to do that, you're going to have to keep your card. And I want to make sure I keep my card. What keeps you up at night? Not doing enough. Um, I always say I'm not doing enough. I remember when uh, Twitch passed away, um, I reached out to Dr. Alfie, who's a, um, a psychologist um, in Washington, D.C., who runs the Acoma Project. And I told her, I don't know what the pathway forward is for black men and black boys around mental health, but I don't think I'm doing enough. Um I've got to do more. I got to figure out how to do more. I got to figure out how to use this platform I have to do more. I don't know what that looks like. So I told her we'll meet soon. But I really think that this is going to start with having candid conversations about what we as black men and black boys are thinking in a way that's non-judgmental, non-punitive, um, and we're free to say what we're thinking out loud because I don't think there's enough spaces where that is okay. And it scares me. Um, I have the luxury of having like, you know, a, a Raisa or an Adara or a Dr. Alfie, you know, to just reach out to and be like, yo, I just need to say what's on my mind and ain't nothing going to happen to me. Everybody doesn't have that kind of access, but we got to change that. You were just talking about wanting to make a difference that you're not doing enough, specifically for black boys and black men. And I'm wondering, um, is it the same? Is it different? Is it more for what you want to do for black girls and black women? I think for black girls, 
it's intuitive for me to do more. I think for black boys, I'm fighting what I've been taught about black male existence. I remember when George Floyd passed away and I wrote this piece um, called Bootless. It was part one. And I said, my daughters now have, you know, etched into their brain an image of a black man laying on the ground with a knee on his neck dying. What does that say about our worth as a, as a, as a world, as a globe for black men? And so I think my approach to doing that for black girls and black women is because I'm protective as a father of two black girls and, and a wife who has, you know, been there for me every step of the way. It's intuitive for me to protect them. And my daughter actually is forming a company now called The Bridge that talks about the transition from girlhood to womanhood. Um, that's not specific to any race. Um, but I've been there the whole step of the way to help her develop that, that social entrepreneurship. But it hasn't been that intuitive for me to do it as a black man for, for black males. And I recognize where the, the, the existence of that, that, um, that non-intuitiveness comes from. It's the way I was taught to perceive black men. Yeah. I was going to ask, where does it come from? What is it? Yeah, I think the imagery around black men is terrible. I can close my eyes and see an image of a black man in an orange jumpsuit. I have to think for a few minutes to close my eyes and naturally see the image of a black man in a suit or a hoodie and not think a negative image. I think media plays a role. I think social media plays a role. Um, I think our our conversations in politics plays a role. I think even the education system in our country plays a role. I think history plays a role. We we have images of a black man bent over with lashes on his back that have circulated the world. I mean, Will Smith just played an amazing role in emancipation. Everyone knows that image. Our thought process around black men and how we approach black men is not nearly as gentle and empathetic and appropriate and soft as it needs to be. There's this thought process that black men are like, they're like beasts. And that can be further from the truth. And I'm just, I'm just at, uh, I have this crossroads in my life where it's just like, nah, I got to change that. I got to change that. People always talk about my social media and how soft I am, how careful I am, how thoughtful I am. But there are black boys and black men doing that every day. The shock is, is that that's never portrayed. The portrayal is there's a black man going to jail. There's a black man who's murdered someone. There's a black man who was killed. There's a black man who's done something wrong. No, there are black dads and, and black men who are killing it in this world. They're doing the most amazing things. And we just got to do a better job of exposing what they're doing and um, fighting some of the negative illustrations we've had for so long. Audience members who are listening, who are now following you on social, 
um, who are motivated to somehow take action, where do you see the most effective action being taken? I think supporting the 15 white coats is an easy place to start. But I think if we're talking about um, affecting change for young folks, especially around mental health, the ACOMA project is where you can start. Um, Dr. Alfie is an amazing advocate for mental health amongst our adolescents and our teens and our kiddos, and our young folks. Um, I think those are two very good places to start. For me personally, obviously I'm biased as training in pediatrics and child and adolescent psychiatry, but I think we need to invest more in our young folks. Old folks used to sit down and spend time with kids and help them to understand what they were going through. We've gotten too busy and too caught up to do that now. And we are seeing some of the ramifications. Childhood suicide has never been higher than it is right now. We got work to do, folks. The Risa Wrap-Up. Let me start by thanking RJ. Dr. RJ Lede, thank you so much for joining me in conversation, for bringing your authenticity, for bringing 150,000% you. Audience, check out the 15 White Coats. This organization is making a difference. Helping people who traditionally could not access or did not think they could access medical education to become, for example, physicians, to join, become healthcare workers. Now, the key is not just helping people join. It's about helping them stay, helping them belong, helping them feel like they belong because truly they belong. Finally, mental health and mental health illness. A lot of people are struggling, be they pediatric patients, adolescents, adults, elders. We need services. We need people like Dr. Lede committing themselves to education, advocacy, and treatment of patients with mental health illnesses. Take care of yourself. And that's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening and as always, to be continued.